You're listening to Lost and Sound. My name's Paul Hanford. I'm a writer, a podcaster and a DJ in Berlin. And I've always believed that one of the best ways we come together is through music. And through this series, we meet the innovators, the outsiders, the mavericks, the people who, when they make music, they do it utterly in their own way. Past guests have included Peaches, Chili Gonzalez, Ghost Poet, Letitia Sadier, and first and more. And each week, I have a conversation with someone who I think approaches music in a fresh and exciting way. Hey, how are you doing? I hope you're good. I hope you're well. I hope you're having a really lovely day. And um, welcome to Lost in Sound, the podcast, of course, where we meet the innovators, the outsiders, the mavericks, the artists that do their thing and we talk about life and the things that inspire us to make the things that we make because beautiful things don't come from a hierarchy of knowledge. They come out of sharing. And today, I'm so happy to have a conversation you're about to hear with the one and only Hannah Peel. Um, I'm so excited to have this chat. It was a chat that we were going to have about a year ago. Then, then things happened and they didn't happen. But we finally managed to have this chat about a week ago. And it was a wonderful chat. Um, as usual, you can hear some atmosphere. I'm in Bodenplatz in Neukölln in, in Berlin. I'm outside a cafe that I really like that I frequent a lot called Lydak. Um, which I think gets a mention in the book. And I'm just embracing the full spectrum of sounds because for the last few days, I had something that apparently is very common when you go swimming. And it hasn't happened to me before through swimming, um, where my ears, I don't want to be too graphic and, and whatnot, but my ears completely blocked up and I couldn't hear, I could barely hear anything after swimming in a lake at the weekend for days that was sunday it's now thursday right yeah anyway um so i went to the doctor today got that sorted out but considering my podcast is called lost and sound it really really connected me full of gratitude in a way that i hadn't before with, with how how we rely on sound not being able to hear and and for me being so lucky that that was just a very very temporary thing but there would be things like i'd be crossing a road and and I wouldn't be able to hear cars coming and and so I'd be like double looking. Anyway, that's cleared up. I can hear birds in stereo. I can hear the sound of of 
of uh, drunk people in stereo. I can hear lots of different things in stereo. I can hear everything in stereo apart from records made in mono. But I guess if I'm listening to them on a record player, I'm still listening to them in stereo because there's the fit, the world, of the, the, the sound of the record player that I'm listening to. Anyway, I'm really, 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 really talking gibberish there. Hannah Peel, yes. Mercury 2021 shortlisted artist, composer, producer, and late night broadcaster. I think she's such a unique voice in that she can create work that's both so singular, um, so her, and so amazingly collaborative. And she explores this through solo albums and through film scores and collaborations with orchestras with other people through reinterpretations of other people's work such as fur wave which we go on to talk about in which she explores and develops sounds from recordings by the bbc radiophonic workshop and we do go into the significance of delia derbyshire in this there's some proper delia respect in this episode going on and uh, the fur wave album i love it and it was mercury nominated as well the list of her stuff is quite immense there was the unfolding album with the power orchestra scores like game of thrones the last watch and coming up and this was like the raison d'entre uh, i'm so good at pronouncing french aren't i raison d'entre i, I think I, I sound like uh, proper only fools and horses style pr- uh, pronunciation of french now i do really really apologize of the midwich cuckoos i wonder if that guy realizes he's making a cameo <laughs> his voice there um which we're here to talk about. Anyway, 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 I'm going to get on. I'm going to get on. Then. Yep, cheers. Have a listen. I hope you enjoy. I really, really love this chat. This is what happened when I met up with Hannah Peel. Yeah. What are you doing in Berlin? How long have you been there? Uh, um, I've been here for four years now. It yeah. was kind of a... Uh, I'd been visiting for a long time and then I, I guess it was kind of galvanized a little bit by Brexit really to kind of sort of think well kind of now or never potentially now or never in terms of of, of like f- getting a kind of registration abroad easily um, but yeah no it's, it's just I, I just I love it no I feel like I've kind of uh, um, I visited England for the first time to see my family a few months ago since the pandemic began and um, I felt like I'd become like a kind of a bit of a Berlin bumpkin going back to <laughs> going back to London you know I was going you know sort of like noticing how long the gaps were between the the tube station stops and kind of the amount of people <laughs> and, and stuff yeah. oh I love Berlin I've not been for a very long time now but like yeah I definitely went through that phase of like I'm gonna move here I'm gonna do this and yeah. never actually ended up doing it I moved to Northern Ireland instead <laughs> Right. Is that where you're speaking to me now from? Yeah. So I, I actually bought a house here four years ago as well. And mm. yeah, with kind of lockdown and Brexit, I was just like, do you know what? I'm just going to leave London and and do this and set up the studio in the house. And yeah, I'm really glad I did actually. And all my family are here. So it's it mm. kind of makes sense to, to be in a place where everybody's quite close. And did you feel like because of when lockdown began, 
the kind of like outside world kind of fell away anyway for a while from everyone. So did it feel to you like, well, it doesn't really matter, like the, the sort of yeah. city life doesn't really matter, you know, I might as well go and have a nice house somewhere else. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I mean, I think I got the house pretty cheap. And then as soon as that, you know, that kind of realisation that everybody else had, the house prices like mm. almost doubled. It was insane. Like, so actually, and even like my neighbours have, have come from England and... Mm. Yeah, there's a real sense of like you can be anywhere. I mean, yeah, I have to fly quite a lot, so I have to offset that <laughs> any way I possibly can. But, but you know, it doesn't. It I think it's opened it up so that as a composer, you you don't have to be in London, and yeah. and that makes it a lot easier. I think for men, I think mental health is really important. So totally, and I think that's something that we you know there's definitely more of a dialogue on now than than there, there used to be you know and, and and do you feel that that's something um the kind of wellness around making music and and being in your environment you are now has that kind of like impacted how you how you compose yeah without a doubt i mean it's definitely given me <laughs> i think the lack of the traveling cuz you know what it's like in london you have a meeting and it's an hour there an hour back has meant that I compose almost double what I used to write when I lived in London. And that has great effects for your career, but also can be very draining. Mm. <laughs> but um, I think like living next to the sea has helped massively, like just in terms of getting some perspective. And actually one of the first things that I worked on fully, like because I was working on Game of Thrones, the, the last watch when I first moved here, but then I started a TV show just before lockdown and it was the first kind of show that I did where it was only a four part series, but it, it was so heavy, like, you know, the horror, the music had to do a lot of the lifting. It was and actually being able to leave the house and go out was really amazing, especially because it was winter. So you were kind of blasted with the elements in order to then come back in and sit in the world again. Yeah, I, I was really thankful to be somewhere like here and then not to be going out into the city, which I would have been before. Yeah, I, I could imagine that because I think as a composer, it must be so interesting when you're working for uh, for screen stuff that, you know, even as just as I don't I never like using the word consumer. It just feels like the most vulgar word in the world to me. But as someone that's just watching and, you know, uh, something on screen, we're kind of transported into that world anyway. But when you're composing and you're kind of like working in minuscule amounts for it, it must if you're working on something that is quite dark, it must be so important to have that kind of counterbalance of like you say, having the sea and the air around you. (laughs) Yeah, I felt like I was in a bit of a a strange world. But yeah, yeah, it it really did help. Um, I guess when you're you're writing for a show, you get so absorbed into it, you you live and and breathe through it. And and that sometimes you just do need those things to really knock you out of it. Like a lot of people here do sea swimming. I haven't got into it yet. But I can see why, because it just reminds your body and your head that you're 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 natural, like the you know, us sitting in front of a computer and us constantly be consumed by everything digital is is not natural for our head spaces. So, you know, like at the moment there's a massive rise in anxiety and and low moods and and it's I think it's definitely to do with the fact of how much we're consuming online. 
and mm. and obviously there's big things happening in the world and we hear about it instantly and you, you absorb it so yeah like i think being next to nature and the elements has has massively helped um you know i don't know if it'll be something that'll help me forever i don't know if it's somewhere i want to stay forever but mm. right now it's 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 brilliant do you have like a sort of like disciplined routine that you do every day? You know, is, is there a way that you know that, you know, you can absorb your creative power in a day the best by by running a day in a certain way? Do you know, I've read about certain composers that have this. Mm. And yeah, like someone, I guess, was it Max Richter I read about that actually like starts the day and doesn't speak to anybody halfway through the, until the afternoon. Uh, or doesn't do emails or anything like that. So they start in the morning. I, f- I find that very difficult because I'm juggling like broadcasting and doing records. And mm. so I, I tend to kind of do a couple of emails in the morning just to clear my mind and then I'll sit. I've definitely found like the earlier, the better to start work. Um, I used to be a complete night owl. So I'd stay up all night and, and write until two or three in the morning. But now I find that it's, I'm just too sleepy. So yeah, <laughs> early, early morning, then, you know, check back in with emails in the afternoon and things. And then usually I'll do something after dinner just to, that hasn't got any pressure, just something that's, that maybe there's a scene that I need to work on that actually needs a little bit more kind of creative headspace, if that makes sense. And it's when it goes yeah. quiet at, at night. Yeah, like, I mean, with, with like, I'm a writer as well. And, and I, I feel like there's definitely different times of day and different moods I'm in for kind of a, a, approaching work with different frequencies. Like sometimes, like you were saying, doing the evening work, which is like maybe a bit lighter. Like I know you, I can't approach work with the same frequency the whole time, really, because it's like it's an organic process, isn't it, really? And you have to kind of sort of gauge the wind around you and you know and and the sort of atmosphere around you and how much energy you've got left really Mm, yeah and I guess when yeah energy is really important especially when you know you've got deadlines coming up Paul and especially with tv more with tv you know it's really demanding so you need to work at the the height of your day (laughs) (laughs) or or you'll just fail and flop (laughs) totally totally yeah and like I mean because you're someone that kind of like seems to have so many different hats as well, you know, even when it comes to, you know, from the broadcasting to to the scoring to even with your albums, there's, you know, they take on themes or like they, they seem to kind of like, you know, like from working with the power orchestra uh, with the unfolding um, through to uh, Fur Wave, you know, the, the sort of like that they, they seem to sort of exist within like definite agendas around them. Do you... Do you enjoy sort of like taking on something that's already got like a little bit of a sort of, uh, uh, not like guidelines, but like a kind of, you know, that has certain things that is not just like a blank slate? Yeah. Yeah. I find blank slates so scary. (laughs) (laughs) I look at them and they just emulate fear. Mm. (laughs) um, So, yeah, I always start with something, whether that be inspiration from a shape or nature or a thought process um it helps actually with you know for example the power orchestra they uh, commissioned me so it helped to have that kind of boundary the the tricky thing is is when they when I kind of said to them okay can can I get a list of all your instrumentalists and what they do and singers etc they were like yeah there's like 75 of us <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was like oh 
Okay, okay, how do I even like start to process that? So, you know, you start, you go back further, you ignore the music almost. I, I tend to like think about what I'm actually trying to say, what am I uh, trying to communicate and have a conversation with and have a conversation with yourself and the listener. And um, and that takes some time. Like the the unfolding took four years from kind of being asked to exploring things, to doing research and development days, to to then recording the record and releasing it. And, you know, that process had to take that time. I remember when I first started looking at it, it, it just didn't feel right. I didn't have the kind of impetus that I needed to, or the urgency to kind of write something for them that actually spoke to them and me as players and 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 individuals as well so yeah it can it almost feels better to have a kind of boundary and mm. and I guess like you know if you'll you probably be the same sometimes you need it's like cooking a recipe you you need those ingredients you can't over if you threw everything into the pot it just ends up a mess mm. and but then you know like if you've got You've got your onions and your chili <laughs> and you want to add a little bit of garlic. That's okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so like, I think it's quite good to set a rule and rules are always there to be broken, but a rule as in like, I like to think about the concept, think about what I'm trying to say, think about what instruments represent that and mm. then and then start with that and try and stick to that as much as possible. And that helps like if I'm producing things and writing things in logic, you know, I'll set up a template. And then when you kind of add extra elements, it feels like a treat and it's ex- and it's it's special. It makes it that extra bit kind of like exciting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I love your food analogy there. It's like, you know, you've got, you've got your kind of, you know, you've constructed your rules, but then every now and then you, you kind of, you realize that you can actually add capers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, capers are a great choice. <laughs> yeah, definitely. They're very niche, aren't they? I think I think I asked someone else about this. Capers came up in another conversation, actually. We were kind of trying to say like what musical instrument a caper would be. And I think that they said it would be a ukulele. In their, in their, oh, their wow. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I guess, yeah, you either love it or hate it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah. <laughs> Um, oh, like with with the score of um, so you've got the score of the Midwich Cuckoos that that's coming out now, and it's really interesting. I mean, my my hot take when I was listening to it is is um, that you know it's, it's obviously it's an adaption of a sort of late nineteen fifties novel, uh, British novel uh, that's been kind of like adapted before, as Village of the Damned as well, and it feels like there's although it's a very contemporary score, and from what I gather, um, a very contemporary adapt. adapt Adaptation. There are touches of like the techniques that you've used, like using analog synthesizers and tape manipulation and, and woodwind that do sort to me hark back to the kind of era that the book was perhaps written in, you know, and like reminds me of obviously Delia Derbyshire as a touch point, but um, also the song Cuckoos as well has like to me it just reminded me of the wicker man for, for in a really good way you know not in a not in a kind of copy way but just you know in a sort of like there's something of the spirit of this kind of weird scary Englishness that I've always loved and I, I was wondering to, to know what your relationship with though you know with that is really yeah I, I mean you summed it up so well there's there's so many elements that 
that have, have, have been discussed by, you know, the, the showrunners and producers and everybody and myself and and that love of of that. I mean, the, the love of Wyndham in, in itself, the, that logical sunlit sci-fi that feels like it's the everyday but it, it has something strange to it and it it doesn't um it doesn't alienate you it makes it feel even more real and I, I think that was a constant challenge for for me was always this kind of element of of the sinister but also the serene and the beauty mm. and and yeah the fact that it's set in kind of like Surrey type England and it, it's got this real kind of look about it as well it it felt like it you know the pastoral sense had to be there and mm. so that came from the woodwinds and but actually I mean interestingly enough you know one of the things when you start off doing a, a kind of horror thriller-esque sci-fi you know that the producers were like we just don't want any theremins like that's it <laughs> <laughs> that was like the golden rule that, that, yeah. that's the ingredient of food that you weren't allowed to yeah and I was like I'm totally happy not to have theremins I mean mm. that's the first thing you kind of think of you go ooh, that would be really good to have this kind of voice you know you know manipulated voice and so then it led me on to going okay well my voice the way I can use that um they'd obviously heard my music boxes and loved the kind of naivety of those, but I, I wasn't keen to use the music box just because it's it's been it's been used before many times. Mm. Um, but yeah, all those all those challenges. And actually, what was strange? I mean, I, I'm a massive fan of the Radiophonic Workshop anyway. In terms of you know my album Furwave and and those experimentations, and there is something really tangible about it and experimental, as in things that you don't get with TV scores because I mean obviously because dead, deadlines are so severe mm. you haven't got chance really to play with a lot of things that you can't reprogram so you know you need it you need things to be in sync you need things to be able to kind of play across so actually what I did in the first instance was not to do anything to click mm. or anything that was to picture it was just experimentation I've got like a really gorgeous Lyra synth up there that's like behind me that's got like eight oscillators on which is impossible to to, <laughs> to make you know do exactly the same thing so I just play with things for quite a long time and capture those things and actually like um particularly on the on the kind of soundtrack album the first track called I think it's called Hive Mind um is is that synth you know it it gets used those elements get used and repeated throughout and they become the sound of the children or something the encroaching doom um so yeah there is this kind of constant balance between the normality pastoral sunlit beauty and and also you know the the unbelievable gorgeousness of motherhood and raising children that you love and then that whole contrast and challenge into what they turn into mm. and what they're capable of. That's made me very intrigued to see it. I don't have a copy of it yet, so I've been kind of like uh, watching the YouTube trailer. <laughs> and, and that's it. And the way you're talking about contrast, it seems like there was quite a lot of improvisation that when you're using your synth Though, and I, I kind of wanted to ask because you're, you're, you know, as someone you know that uh, is classically trained and and you know can work with an orchestra, uh, quite that that the, often uh, there seems to be like a kind of difficulty between classically trained kind of mindsets and improvisational sets. Then I don't get the impression that you have 
I might be wrong that you have this problem at all. <laughs> um, uh, is, you know, how, how do you sort of, you know, and if, if you don't have this problem, you know, do you feel that it is quite intuitive for you to be able to switch between intuitive improvisational approaches and, uh, and very structured, le- learned approaches? Yeah, well, I think like first and foremost, my classical training ended before I went to university. <laughs> mm. So um, I, you know, did all my grades and learned how to play my instruments and, and then went to um, a, a university in Liverpool where basically you didn't have to read, you, you could go and it was just based on the skill mm. and I had to learn how to jam and improvise and learnt skills there and it almost I mean it was really difficult to throw out the pages and the notes and just think about the music and and what that's taught me is that element of play and when you get over that fear you know you start with one note and that one note leads to two notes and I would never say that I'm an improviser um, as a session musician mm. uh, or anything like that but it definitely has taken my head away from the page and actually what I prefer to do now is even though I can score and do those things I prefer a lot more to write and play and use the computer and then give it to people that can do the scoring because it just stops me from thinking about the whole picture like vertically and horizontally mm. when you know when you've got that um the notes to think about I think it's quite restrictive sometimes but yeah yeah, I mean like also but also to say like you know and I think this is possibly true for quite a lot of people I'm you know I've done orchestrations for artists like Paul Weller and and things like that but I'm I'm self-taught in that sense like Mm. I was never given the opportunity to kind of develop those skills Mm. with a teacher so I've learned through mistakes and having great people around me which is always um you know humbling but also very uh revealing as well <laughs> yeah it's, it's kind of a long process I guess isn't it and I, I guess it's like that there's a real intuitiveness to learning from mistakes isn't there because like mistakes happen to us all of the time but um we can kind of switch off the idea that there's a lesson that we can learn from them and they can just become <laughs> something that we find a bit of a curse yeah totally yeah, and it's all about shaking off the kind of shackles of of your past and what, you know, it's it's a constant relearning. And I think that's what's really beautiful about music is you just constantly learn about the next thing and the next thing and what what pushes you in certain ways. And then you find what's, what really sticks and what makes you what makes you tick. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's amazing that you can use an art form to understand yourself, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, isn't that amazing that we yeah. use art to do that? I mean, totally, and it's it's like a sort of it was, that's a surprise to me. Like when I was writing, I, re- I recently wrote a book, and and I was writing about other things, but I think I learned so much about myself in the process. Mm. I mean, like you know, as humans, we I guess we we're highly intelligent. Like we we can invent things and and mathematically look for things, and but I, I don't think we're very developed emotionally. I think we're still very much in the dark ages we think we are Mm. and I guess like but we're constantly learning you know I mean I guess 
any adult just loves to be cuddled you know like there's that element of being cradled still within us like I, I think it's it's really endearing factor of of being human and, and I think that you know with music as well it embraces that and it, sometimes it can comfort you and bring you solace and then give you an open door to something that you didn't realize you know we, we like to think we're we're so on it but I, I don't think we are <laughs> well, we don't really get to, I mean, I mean, I guess there probably are schools that are kind of doing really interesting things, but we don't really get like to emotional studies at school or, or like different kind of uh, complexities of things like that. So maybe yeah, like music and art does become like a kind of this open resource or church of people to kind of give us solace when, when we need. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it definitely, you know, some people are very lucky to have families that are quite emotionally in touch with themselves. Mm. But yeah, I think the general kind of understanding is, I mean, even I, I think I'm quite emotionally in touch with myself, but I still think that I have a lot to learn or things that I don't want to approach and keep in a cupboard. And then it, and then it evolves into something else. Like I'm doing something at the moment that is um, scoring for film and it's to deal with grief and mm. and I, it's definitely triggered quite a few things from childhood like just watching it has made me kind of go okay do I just get totally absorbed into this film and and go with the flow or is there something in me that's really holding back because I don't want to let go you know like there's mm. there's a lot in us that um and I think that's really I mean that's what I think I enjoy the most with with scoring work in particular is what isn't said and the hinting of certain things like you know like I have not scored Midwich Cuckoos with one jump scare in it or one mm. kind of element of like this is scary yeah. you go. like it mm. is all about the subliminal co complications between relationships between what we were saying like the sublime and the sinister and and how we manage that on a day-to-day -day basis because it's never clear is it it's no, always no. quite fate fuzzy and foggy and and held with so much other stuff yeah we're always sort of uh i guess it's like in a way like life is often about looking for clues or just clues around us or shades rather than yeses and noes yeah that's a great way of thinking of it shades mm. <laughs> and it's sort of, you mentioned a few times there about kind of growing up and i wanted to ask you a couple of questions about like how music and sound came into your life growing up and and I, i've read elsewhere that you know as a child in northern ireland you you know you you grew up in a time where there was still like the conflict going on and the, the sounds around you played a kind of role and, and without wanting you to sort of feel that you have to reiterate stuff that you've maybe said in interviews too much before I was wondering if what, what kind of jumped out at you there about that kind of early formative sound world yeah I guess yeah I mean for sure um the sound has played a, a huge thing and actually this is something that I didn't really think about until I was doing the Furwave album and I was talking about Delia Derbyshire and and I was saying oh Delia Derbyshire you know she was in Coventry during the war a lot of those sounds got kind of into her psyche and I was like oh my god like you know I, I had loads loads of experiences you know you hear gunshots there was um alarms going off there was like uh, when I was six there was a bomb that went off in Belfast just literally on the same road we were on you know those types of heightened drama things that don't necessarily feel all fluffy and lovely as childhood um 
come straight into your music and then I guess but not not subconsciously I guess there's always an element of like I don't think about that on a daily basis but I definitely have a love of found sounds and manipulating those found sounds and and I do wonder if it has come from that period and yeah you know heightened feelings and drama always seems to kind of infiltrate into music somehow there's always a journey there's always like a uh, you know, with the the unfolding album, there is a kind of cyclical nature of the whole record. There's growth in every single track in terms of they, they move and fluctuate. And, you know, maybe that sense of, of growing up in Ireland with stories and, and mm. tales and narrative always plays into the music. That's really interesting. So, uh, and what was it like is sort of like when when you know like as you're talking about sound and the ta- sort of tales and the influence around but when uh actual music mm. as music starts to come into your life you know what were the kind of sort of like what was the sort of big influences that you had all the kind of you know again we talked a little bit earlier on about like how uh music can act as as a kind of an emotional network you know support system or power when when you when you're younger, well, any age, but like at school. And I was wondering, like when, at school, how did music sort of creep into your life? Yeah, my um, my parents were actually very good. At, I think, you know, when you moved to, we went left Northern Ireland and went to Yorkshire, mm. hence the Yorkshire accent. Hmm. Um, you're going to a, a different place, a different set of experiences. There's no troubles there, but they have their own kind of background. And uh, I think that, the one thing that my parents did as a as a brilliant gift to us was give us music lessons. And so we were absorbed straight away into that culture of, of brass banding, learning a brass instrument. So I learned the cornet to begin with, and then I went on to piano and learned the violin and played fiddle music. And, and every single kind of day was either a lesson or a school band or a, a the town orchestra or something. Mm. So, yeah, it became a kind of lifeline and... And to kind of contrast that, the leaving of something, like the loss of something was made up by using music, Um, you know, a change in your landscape. You know, it wasn't at an age where I was too young to not remember it. I remember it very well. So I guess like, um, you know, sounds in that way and friendships have always been formed with music and that informed everything I did at school as well like secondary school, forming bands, playing with other people and but also like... Oops, excuse me but also like the um the the sense of when you first hear a song and it and it makes you feel amazing and the first song I ever heard was uh, my neighborhood was a really uh, an old guy but was an avid collector of vinyl and he had a carpenter's best of record and <clears throat> he came, he said I want you to come around and I want to give you this record and I want you to take really good care of it and I you know like eight nine years old mm. you kind of like don't know what to do with it and I put it on my parents record player and set it all up and um and when I first heard the sounds of of Karen Carpenter's voice I just was like oh my god she is incredible and you know that music was the thing that gave me the shivers down the spine and and I guess there's always that element of trying to recreate those special things that make you get really excited inside it's almost like your atoms start fizzing and Mm. and I've always found that working with picture I get those fizziness things 
Um, I get it with live, like the unfolding when we've done it live. I get that feeling when I hear like Victoria Oruwari, she's the vocalist on that. And when she sings, that sends that into me. And I think um, there's something really incredible that is, I don't know, it's just always a thing that I've always tried to look for in music. I love what, you know, I can really relate to that myself and I love what you're describing there in lots of different ways. Like when you're talking about atoms, um, it's almost like, to me, you know, the way I picked up on what you were saying was like, uh, when there's something, that, like a sound or a piece of music that reminds you of, that takes you back to how music kind of came into your life, it's like a sort of homing system in, in your in your body, like a, um, you know, like those kind of like radiation uh, kind of sticks, like, like when they sort of go, beep, 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 beep. <laughs> um, or it's something yeah. that maybe like opens up like gills of a, of a fish, you know, that, 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 that's the sound, that's the sound. And I had something quite similar with the carpenters and also Burt Bacharach as well. Something, I've been in Germany too long, I'm saying Burt Bacharach. <laughs> um, but the, but the, the kind of, there's something about those kind of melodies from the 60s uh, and Carol Kane as well, that, you know, um, Carol King, sorry, uh, that, were, that sort of just, there's a sort of naive sincerity going on with that that just takes me back to really long, boring afternoons before there was internet where it was still really beautiful where you just kind of like just be a child in a room really yeah you listen to a lot more things yeah mm. it's not all about the sight and the visual interaction mm. Mm. yeah and, and with you know with fur wave as well like you know as you mentioned just now um uh, there was a Delia Derbyshire element quite a big strong element to that and also you kind of talking about like with the album that a lot of the song titles have got like natural references references to nature as well and I was wanting to know how this all kind of came together in in the way that felt exciting for you the kind of combination of Delia Derbyshire and nature and making also a piece of music that's in, incredibly modern as well incredibly progressive <laughs> thank you <laughs> I mean sometimes you just make a record and you don't have a second thought about it and you put it out and, and then it, it seems to touch people and people talk about it and there's a story around it. But, you know, and I guess in the first instance, I'm not being overly humble, but they, um, uh, it wasn't made as a record for anybody, like not even really. I mean, it was made as a library record. So the original record, Electrosonic 1972, um, that I was allowed, I was given permission from is owned by KPM Library Music. And they had said, just take the record, do what you want with it. You can do anything. Uh, you have our permission, et cetera, et cetera. And, I, and it'll get released on the library. It'll never get put out into the world. And so that you, there's an element of just like, all right, fine. This sounds like a good project. I mean, when do you ever get the chance to take Delia Derbyshire and Radiophonic Workshop material and just make it into something new? So there was a real play and exploration with that record because there wasn't any pressure to do anything. And if there had been, I, I do wonder what the outcome would have been because I probably would have thought about the pressure of how much those people and the music that they made would have impacted into the record. Whereas... Not that it was careless, but it was just a an easier way to approach uh, something that has a bit more kind of stature to it. So, uh, you know, like I just kind of took samples of the record that I felt could be made into an, a MIDI instrument. And then I played those 
samples again but then in any key that I wanted so and then made and then forgot about the record and made just a, a record of things that I thought were really lovely and and great and the names kind of floated in and it referenced you know that that original record is very much of its era it feels quite soviet and industrial like scientifically and um like in a, almost in a lab like they would have they wrote it for people that were going to be making lab doc- documentaries and stuff mm. <laughs> and um and so when i was thinking about the titles and where i was kind of going with this this piece of work was well actually like thinking about the era that we live in the recycling the economic era the eco awareness um the patterns that are never ending that were there in her music that are there in, in sorry in that record even and that are here now it's like the tide never stops the 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 wind never stops there's always this these patterns that come and come again so yeah there and then anyway down the line it was finished and it got to the beginning of lockdown and they said to the KPM had said look if you want to release it it's a really good record and I was like really <laughs> so given that time and space I was like mm, okay so I got it the album as a sense remixed two of the tracks that I, I kind of weren't very happy with mm. I got um a really good friend of mine called Tim Allen who's um based in Bristol to uh, just look at the drums and reproduce the bits of it because I couldn't take it any further and it became an album and and so we released it and just did a little little limited run and then was and then that was it that was the whole plan <laughs> it was just like we've got some we've got some time and space let's just do this and mm. and yeah it kind of resonated and took off in a way that just wasn't expected and I think that's the most beautiful thing it was almost like well, I like to think that like maybe Delia had a bit of magic stardust that she sprinkled on it and, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she did and I, I mean but that's a yeah like, that's such a beautiful process that the fact that something really natural happened whereas otherwise there would have been I mentioned like you said it must have been such a huge sense of stepping into someone else's shoes or yeah, you just not wanted to touch that material. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, if someone said to you, because it's not a remix record, but if somebody mm. said, can you remix this whole record, it just would have been a completely different work of art in, in that sense. And I think there's a, some there's a beauty in having a record that wasn't made for an audience. Mm. And, and maybe that introspectiveness has carried through. Um, well, yeah. But there's that expression, isn't there? Dance like no one's watching you. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, yeah, and you fully enjoy it, then, don't you? <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> and what, what do you think is the? Because um, you know, I think Delia is someone that's kind of uh, becoming more and more canonized, uh, becoming more and more. Um, uh, like uh, I'm really excited to read the Cozy Fanny Tutti book, uh, Resisters, mm. which I don't have yet. And there was the documentary a couple of years ago. What for you would you say? What's the importance? Do you feel of Delia Derbyshire? Because actually, I'm going to shut up and just ask you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you saw the, the Sisters with Transistors film. Yes, I did. Oh yeah, my god! Yeah. I mean, that was amazing. And and first and foremost. You know, it it spanned, you know, different continents, and and it it felt like there was, 
I don't know, watching that just reminded me that there was Adelia in every country. Mm. And I think that the importance of her in the UK is that we have her and, and Daphne Aram and, you know, a couple of us, but she's kind of been held as the pinnacle because she was so undiscovered for so long. And also she kept everything in her attic and it feels so quintessentially English and British mm. <laughs> that, you know, she was there and making all this amazing stuff and it was in her attic and then it was found and she's already long gone. And I, I, there's just this story around it that it makes her into a bit of a, a God in some senses that I, and she was brilliant. Like she was just absolutely brilliant. The stuff that she made was was fantastic, and 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 it wasn't just for the radiophonic workshop. You know, like she did dance shows and theatre. And I was given access to an interview with her just before, like the summer just before she died. And and hearing her talk about things, she she is quite jaded by the whole system because she was ignored and neglected, and it it made it very sad to to hear that she'd gone through that. And in some ways. You want to honour that because like I feel like because of her, I've had a career that's been able to flourish, especially in the last few years, because there's more awareness. We are highlighting where there is a problem, where there has been a problem, and then that gives focus to the next generation and and inspiration. I mean, God, I, in some ways, I wish I'd heard of her like when I was 12, 13, maybe my career would be very different like I probably would have started very a lot earlier and a lot sooner whereas like you know I didn't call myself a producer really until the last kind of five years because I didn't believe it <laughs> yeah. but, so I think you know there's definitely a shift and it's lovely to see a lot of younger artists coming up with confidence to say exactly what they do and who they are and what would you say to um young artists or maybe young young people that are kind of like pre even considering themselves artists that have this kind of desire to create or feel that 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 kind of that that, that, that being a producer or a composer is within them but maybe still feel that that they would be excluded what would you what kind of advice would you give them to encourage them um i think and you know i guess this is from my own experience and one of the the key things that I heard was find your own sound I mean we live in a society where everybody is striving to be incredibly individual but actually it's just finding a sound that you love that you can connect with and you can develop and and take to the next place yeah yeah I think for some people like I know for myself with writing it took a lot of maybe using other people's sounds or ideas before, and then before as a, as a springboard until yeah. um, kind of like a riding a bike, learning to ride a bike thing where you kind of realize after a while that there's no more stabilizers on the bike, but you know, I didn't realize they were being taken off. So that analogy doesn't totally hold up, but um, <laughs> there's a, you, it's, it's a learning to just be natural sense. isn't it? Yeah. And having confidence within that and, mm. I, there's like an element of of play that always needs to be there yeah exactly what you're saying that you have to have an expansion of the mind and listen to everything else that has been done before to be able to go I like that I like that I like that mm -hmm. and then essentially you're going to make something that is you because you are you've found that the things that you like and the combat and that what we were talking about earlier that recipe that makes you mm. 
I like, I really love listening to Laurie Anderson on podcasts and stuff because mm. she always has this kind of sense of like, she's an artist and you can't pigeonhole her into one thing. And, and I love that. And, and that hearing that gave me confidence to go, it's fine that you are not just a singer and you do mm. this. Like it kind of made me go, no, I can have a different hat you know like what you were saying earlier that I wear different hats but that's all good because it all feeds into every single element that you do that it's just the um the the branding of you (laughs) that Mm. that is the the funny part of it (laughs) (laughs) yeah totally and and what people struggle with Yeah, yeah, definitely. The, the pie casing for the ingredients inside, perhaps in some oh, ways. Yeah, and you know, sometimes like labels really help people, but bloody mm. hell, it's 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 not good to be labeled as something. <laughs> no, and it can be quite a surprise when you when you find a a, a, a label being put on you as well. Oh say. yeah, yeah. I, the first record I did. Mm. Um, and they always say the first album you do is kind of like your whole childhood up until mm. that record. And it definitely had elements of folk and, and but lots of sound and ex- experimentation, like in there, there was synths and stuff like that. And, and, you know, I've got this lovely little high pitched voice and I was so young and, and the guy who helped produce it was also like massively into kind of wonky folk and, mm. and, Oh, folktronica I hate that phrase but you know that that <laughs> that was what it was labeled as and I remember somebody writing about it in a paper and saying I was about this folk artist and I was livid I was like I am not a folk artist I've done everything mm. I've never been a folk artist like how can you say that but yeah I look back and go you can easily label it as that because I don't have the back catalog of all these other different things so yeah w- those labels can help and hinder but also like you know for me it was like I'm not gonna do that and I did something completely different after that so Mm. um and have subsequently kept up that that pattern (laughs) of doing something different every single time but you know I guess that's just an acceptance of of being an artist and what yeah what makes you tick absolutely Hannah thank you so much thank you so much for talking to me oh it's been a pleasure thank you for having me So that was Hannah Peel chatting with me, Paul Hanford, for Lost and Sound podcast. And we had that chat in early June 2022. Um, I'm so happy to have had that chat. I love chatting with Hannah. Thanks so much for giving me your time there, Hannah. Um, I love the fact that um, she did a really amazing food metaphor. I was well happy about that. That does seem to be a very occasional little theme on the podcasts it came to me just a second after i said it in the show about who it was that we made the capers analogy before and it was tuneyards that was tuneyards coming from about two years ago and that was a fantastic chat i had a really nice remembrance of having that chat there um it does make me wonder what kind of what kind of food a pheromone would be for some reason i'm thinking of an aubergine i'm not sure